Welcome back to Wise Words, the podcast where we talk to thought leaders, innovators, educators, and artists about any and all things to do with education. On this episode, we feature a conversation with Fareed Zakaria. Fareed Zakaria is a broadcaster and journalist. You may have seen him on CNN as the host of the weekly public affairs show, Fareed Zakaria GPS. He also writes a column for the Washington Post and is a contributing editor for the Atlantic Media Group, which includes the highly respected Atlantic magazine. Fareed is also a best-selling author of books such as The Post-American World and In Defense of a Liberal Education. Most of our conversation revolved around the themes he explores in In Defense of a Liberal Education. We discussed the importance of the humanities at a time when STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics is seen as the surest path to success in the workplace. Fareed is an incredibly thoughtful and astute observer and commentator of human affairs, and perhaps not surprisingly given the success of GPS, remarkably easy to talk to. I hope it won't be the last conversation we have with him. As always, we welcome your feedback on iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a rating as it will help others to find us. You can also communicate with us on Twitter at wise underscore tweets using the hashtag wisepod. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with uh, Fareed Zakaria. Fareed, welcome to Wise Words. Pleasure to be here, Stavros. Fareed, you're well known uh, around the world as a, a astute observer, commentator and thinker on uh, geopolitics and, and global affairs. But you've also uh, thought and written uh, deeply about uh, education. Uh, and in particular, you recently wrote a very well-received book uh, in defense of a liberal education. So that's what I uh, would like to, uh, to discuss with you today. Uh, and in particular, maybe we begin our conversation by, by asking what prompted you to, to write such an impassioned defense uh, of liberal education? Well, Stavros, it came out of the, uh, the, the, the sense that American uh, education was headed down a very kind of, uh, 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 not perhaps a bad path or, or a misguided path, but a, an incomplete path. That there is now a, a mania in America, and increasingly, uh, as always yeah. with American trends moving around the world, to say that the big problem in education is we don't have enough of a focus on what is called STEM, the science, technology, yep. mathematics. And I thought that the reason this was fundamentally misguided was that uh, the American education system that was, dis that was, that was distinctive, uh, that the world looked up to, that had been the kind of role model for universities around the world, was a, was a mixed model. It was a model that, of course, emphasized science and technology, but also emphasized the humanities, and that was what it meant by a liberal education, yep. this kind of combination of arts, science, humanities, math, and music, uh, and that we were losing a sense and appreciation of, of our own uh, special advantages in all, all sort of trying to become clones of, of some technical institute in you know India or China, yeah. But we were not willing. We weren't stepping back and asking ourselves, wait a minute. If you think about it, it is that American system of liberal education that produced uh, the apples, Google's, Facebooks, Instagrams uh, of the of the world. Uh, these didn't come out of China. These didn't come out of South Korea. These didn't come out of uh, out of India. 
And so why are we not appreciating that much broader kind of education that was able to produce all kinds of all kinds of uh, advances, including most importantly yeah. these technological advances. Yeah, I, th I thought it was it was very telling in, in your book that you uh, you, you cited data that, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here from the book that you say it shows clearly that the drumbeat of the skills gap, um, as you said, has shifted people from the humanities to the less rigorous fields of business and communication. That's so it hasn't really shifted people into the sciences or into engineering, but into these other uh, less rigorous uh, disciplines. Do you want to maybe elaborate no, a little bit on exactly. that? Exactly. So, so if you look at the data, as you said, it's absolutely clear that you haven't had a big uptick of people uh, going into physics, chemistry, biology, uh, chemical engineering, because these are hard subjects. People, you either have aptitude, you've learned, you've learned it at a young age, and you, you know your particularly math skills have either uh, developed or atrophied. What has happened is it has made people much more careerist, much more narrow, yeah. and thinking to themselves of education almost like a trade school. So yeah, yeah they're, they're major in business studies, communication uh, studies, uh, public relations, sometimes very narrow fields. And the problem with those is that you're you're foregoing this extraordinary opportunity you have in college yeah. to get a broad education. Um, you're going to have to narrow as you go through life, and you're going to have to narrow in your first job, in your second job, in your third job. Yeah. What you want college to be is the broad set of skills that allow you to do any of those jobs. Uh, I think the president of Harvard said to me, uh, we think of the, the best education that we can provide as one that pro that uh, trains you for your first job and your sixth job. Yeah. Um, and that ability to have a kind of lasting impact is going to be much, much stronger, uh, particularly in a world in which you may be working at a company that that hasn't been started 10 years from now. You may be working in an industry yeah. that doesn't exist 10 years from now. What kind of education do you, do you need? Yeah. We don't know. What we know is you need some broad fundamental skills of how to think, how to read, how to write, yeah. how to add. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I want to come to that, especially I, I really enjoyed the piece um, in, in the book where you, you discuss writing and why writing is... is uh, it's, it's almost a clear writing and good writing is a precursor to, to clear and, and, and good, uh, good thinking. But before we get there, I, I just want to uh, touch on, on, uh, on another point that I think is implicit in, uh, in this little uh, uh, snippet of the book that, that we've been discussing, which is people tend to associate um, the humanities uh, with um, and, and other sort of creative fields with a lack of rigor. But I think what you're arguing here is actually is that there is that the traditional humanities, history, philosophy, language, are in fact very, very rigorous uh, disciplines in their own right. Yeah, if you think about it, if you, if you do art history correctly, what you are learning is you are getting a very rigorous uh, grounding in one or two countries' uh, actual histories, the history of what yeah. was going on in Renaissance Italy and Renaissance France, for example. You have to learn two languages, often in addition to the one that you've learned. Yeah. You are then also taught visual design and the ability to understand, yeah. you know, kind of how to appreciate things from a visual point of view. Uh, and th that's a that's a lot of training that is going yeah. into producing this uh, this art history uh, master's or PhD or uh, undergraduate major. Um, I think one place that I that I would agree with the critics is that 
the humanities have um, in some ways uh, caused a certain amount of self-inflicted wounds to, to, uh, to they've inflicted some wounds upon themselves because there are areas where um, the humanities have lost rigor. Yeah. They have uh, in some ways uh, either dumbed down the curriculum or got rid of any kind of requirements uh, in a sort of uh, attempt to create a very laissez-faire, anything-goes atmosphere. There's now, I think, a, at, at this point, you can get a English uh, major at Harvard, uh, and I think the only requirement is one course in Shakespeare, one one semester course in Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, that's wrong. Yeah. I think that one of the reasons I've talked to employers about this, and I've said to them, why do you hire? Uh, you know, you talk to banks. Why are you hiring chemical engineers or even economics majors whom they like when you know you know what you're going to be teaching is a much more narrow, specific yeah. thing? And and they say to me, you're absolutely right. We are going to train these kids to do what we want them at the bank, at the at, at the company. But what we like about uh, the sciences, what yeah. we like about engineering, what we like about the social sciences, even the economics and political science graduates do very well, is that they we understand what we're getting. We're yeah. getting a kid who has been trained in a body of thought, yeah. trained rigorously, with n- limited grade inflation, and so we we can kind of judge the product. Yeah. When we go, go into the humanities these days, you're getting somebody who's written their 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 thesis on, you know, West African poets uh, from 1970 to 74, who may have you know has got all A's because the subjects they study are so narrow they're yeah. the world expert in the subject they're studying yeah. uh, and some of that is all true that there is a, there's a lack of predictable uh, of a predictable structured curriculum yeah. there's a lack of rigor uh, and i think you know when in, in, in at yale in the 1950s getting an a in english was as hard as getting an a in physics yeah that is no longer true and yeah. that that is a self-inflicted wound i mean i i still i'm, I'm old enough uh now that that i can I can say that again. When we were in school, actually, the, these subjects were were harder. Getting exactly. an A in history, getting an A in English literature, was harder than uh, physics because it was it was less it was less clear yeah. what a rigorous uh, uh, analysis of, of of Shakespeare or an exposition of you know the, on the Napoleonic Wars you know would would get you how to be distinctive in that area was right. uh, was much harder than you know, knowing the answer to the physics or the or the math problem. You know, I, I'll say something that's politically incorrect, but I believe it's true on the basis of many private conversations with faculty uh, in these humanities departments. What they say is part of what has happened is an understandable desire to have um, to have the, the 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 histories of people that were not represented yeah. be represented yeah. has led to the rise of a lot of ethnic studies and yeah. gender studies and all those kinds of things. And what tends to happen is the people who go into those programs are almost political activists, yeah. right? They are they are studying those issues because they are ardent feminists or because they're ardently, uh, you know, Hispanic activists or, yeah. or African-American activists. And in that atmosphere, being such a proponent and an advocate becomes confused with being an expert. Yeah. And it becomes easy to get an A because of your enthusiasm and your commitment to a cause rather than your work and expertise in a subject. Yep. And then that has the effect of creating, uh, you know, honestly competition. I mean, if the, you know, a, 
a history professor is not is not going to want all his students to go and migrate into those other fields and so he then yeah. starts providing easier grades and lowering standards and there's a kind of race to the bottom so it's entirely you know there were the best intentions but i do believe that this whole proliferation of very narrow uh ethnic uh, minority and gender studies has had the effect of confusing advocacy and academic analysis. Yeah. No, and, that, and that's and I think you raise a you raise a very interesting interesting point. And I and I saw again in the book you had this almost like an in, in, internal debate over this issue of uh, great books courses yeah. and whether there is a a sort of a canon of literature or a canon of philosophy that ought to be core for uh for everyone to to know um and and to a certain extent at least my read of of what you're saying is that part of the problem is that knowledge has to a certain extent been nationalized mm -hmm. and so you know the the greeks um i'm ethnically greek and you know we we've obviously very proud of our history and you know we, we've kind of appropriated the the uh, the the wonderful literature that came out of uh, classical Greece, the philosophy, the history, um, whereas in reality, it's it's really not ours to appropriate. If if you look at it uh, objectively, it is it is something that belongs to the world. And knowledge is not confined and has never been confined by geographic boundaries. It one culture builds on another. One civilization builds bills on another um, and and I think that's what you've are what you're articulating is 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 you know that problem taken almost to the nth degree where you know each uh, subgroup or subculture feels the need to have its own um, canon almost you know I'd never quite thought of it uh, in quite in the way um, but you articulate a very important point you know which is that um, knowledge by its nature actually would question the very idea of a national culture, a national project. Was, yeah. the, you know, if you think about what, what after all is Greek culture or, or the Greek legacy, is it very tr clearly distinct from the Macedonian legacy, from, you know, many, there were many p points of overlap between Greek and Roman, of course. Yep. What did, what do we mean by Greece when half of what we mean by Greece is now Turkey? Yeah. And, 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 beyond. and beyond. And beyond. And, and, and so, Egypt and. Right. And yeah. so, what, you know, one of the, one of the challenges I think that one should place on these kinds of, um, uh, ethnic studies programs is to ask: well, Isn't part of the ed point of education to question that the very the very idea of some kind yeah. of cohesive Hispanic culture, cohesive African American culture? Um, perhaps the, the 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 reality is much is much broader, much inter much more interconnected, and you know, and much more porous. Yeah. Um, and you know, but but I understand the impulse, of course, yeah. which was that these these groups were historically underrepresented in the narrative yes uh, and so there was so there's an attempt to to kind of make amends or to make restitution um, but I don't think we have ended up in a good place yeah um, so have you revised at, at all your, your thought because you, you wrote the book I think in 2015 2016 so have you revised your thinking on this on the great uh, great books course at all or because you you, you yeah, land yeah, yeah. on the side of well uh, of, of shall we say a, a more laissez-faire approach? Yeah. 
you know, I think that I still feel that um, unless unless it's very well done, these great books courses can be um, can become a chore, uh, and they can they can kind of narrow rather than expanding. Uh, I would like to see some greater structure in every in every department. You can't get an English degree without a certain canonical, you know, procession that you have to go through. You can't get a history degree without some basic uh, sequence of courses. But I think that um, being able to do a grand general core uh, is is hard, and yeah. so. Columbia manages to do it pretty well. Um, Chicago manages to do it pretty well. But I think that, you know, one of the great virtues of the American system has been the extraordinary creativity and choice that it gives students. And it allows them to really follow their passions, their interests. And that's hard to balance with a very large great core. So I could could fudge it for you and say, Mm -hmm. look, as long as it was a skinny uh, great core... Uh, I'd be fine, and I think that I think I would be fine with yeah. that. But that I'm not sure how much that that helps. You know, you sure. have to kind of uh, you have to jump in with both feet. Um, I think that the Yale uh, NUS program is an interesting yep. uh, uh, yep. A, a blend, which I talk about. Um, and certainly, if you do one of these great books courses, it shouldn't go beyond I think you know a year, a year and a half. So yeah. you have lots of time yeah. to to experiment. Yeah, and maybe one one way to think about it is 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 not to build it around maybe specific texts, but but rather perhaps examples yeah. of those yeah. texts or and so or, it's or almost yeah. subjects as a result. So Ex- you should exactly. you have to take two courses in yeah. this kind of the biggest challenge, as you know, has been uh, the teaching of science. Yeah, uh, it is very hard to get scientists to be willing to teach science in a general way yeah. that a non-science uh, major can understand, uh, and which has led to a real uh, you know, at this point, it's more than a divorce. It's a chasm between the sciences and yeah. the non-sciences. And I think that's one of the great deficiencies uh, of the modern education system. It's not that we should all be learning how to be co- uh, coders, but we should all understand what it the means basics. to code. Yeah, the fundamentals. Um, yeah. We, you know, we should understand <clears throat> the difference between a bit and a byte, between a molecule and an atom. Uh, and we don't. Uh, yeah. I think well-educated people can get through four years of college without knowing the difference. Yeah between a, you know, a neutron and a, and a proton. Uh, and we would think it would be absurd for somebody to not know, you know who Shakespeare was, but yet there's a level of scientific ignorance yep. that is equivalent. And I think one of the great challenges of good education is finding a way to teach non-scientist science. Um, and yeah. we, we haven't yet cracked it. Part of it is the scientists don't like to teach. They think of it yeah. as dumbed down, but if, if they don't do it, who will? Yeah, no, and that's interesting. And, and I, I'm not sure if you're if you're aware of this, but there is a an institution that was set up in London by the philosopher uh, Anthony Grayling. Yeah, it's called the New College of the Humanities, huh. and one of their core courses is is called scientific literacy. And interesting. And so the the college is as 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 the name implies very humanities social right. science focused, but scientific yeah, yeah. literacy yeah. is is a core and you. And you have to take that course uh, over the uh, over the period of uh, three to four years that you're there. So that's fascinating. So, yeah. for example, one of the things I've often wondered is if you're a history major from a major university, shouldn't you have to take one course in the history of science? Exactly. After all, if yeah. you ask yourself what 
<clears throat> what element of history has shaped the modern world more yeah. than the history of science? You know, no, I, I, starting with yeah. Aristotle, going through the, the you know the Renaissance, uh, the the Enlightenment, the scientific yeah. revolutions of Copernicus, Galileo, to Einstein. If, if you don't understand that, you're really not understanding yeah. how how we ended up where we are today. Yeah. Well, I mean, history is a, is is something of a passion of mine, and and I and I couldn't agree more. I think, again. To, to build on my earlier theme of the nationalization of of, uh, uh, of knowledge, history has has been nationalized yeah. as well. So you tend to have, you know, uh, national narratives of uh, of history, almost yeah. always yeah. involving the acts of great men, yeah. almost always involving conflict or struggle yeah. against yeah. the other, and and we never teach history as as a continuum, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the history of ideas. Which is yeah. essentially the history of uh, of science, at least post seventeenth uh, uh, century. It, it it's really about the history of science. Yeah. That's a better way, in my view, yeah. Yeah. to to convey um, the story of humanity. It's a wonderful point again about the the nationalization, because when, when we're teaching, for example, the greatest breakthroughs of the scientific revolution occurred in a pre-national era. Yes. I mean, Galileo yeah. did not think of himself as Italian. Italy no. wouldn't exist for 300 years. Yeah. Uh, most of these people thought of themselves as inhabitants of a city, maybe, yeah. uh, perhaps by their religious affiliation, but mostly they thought of themselves as men of ideas. Yeah. That was their principal identification. They were not doing this for Italy or Pisa or or Florence. They were maybe a few of them for Florence, but but generally yeah. speaking, it was a kind of broader. In, uh, civilizational quest, yep. and we have narrowed it and turned yep. it into a national one. Well, I mean, a lot of them would, were, to a certain extent, journeymen. They would, yep. you know, they would travel from, you know, city Wherever to city, they would, yeah. looking for sort of patronage and yeah. support yeah. Yeah. Uh, of, of their work. And they were, and they were. Um, I, I listened to your to your show the other day where you uh, uh, you were interviewing Walter Isaacson and, About and Leonardo. And I went out and, and I bought. Uh, I, I have I have I think all of all of his biographies. <laughs> that, that that Walter Isaacson wrote, yeah. uh, and and went and got Leonardo. Leonardo is a is a great example of, you know, someone who was an artist, an engineer, um, a, a, a philosopher. Yeah. I mean, in, yeah. in in so many different uh, uh, different fields. And 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 again, one of the things that I feel has been happening, progressively in in uh, in in the knowledge space, is that there is there is such pressure to specialize. You know, if you're to be successful yeah. uh, today, you really need to be a specialist. I mean, there's very few jobs that sort of celebrate. Maybe the job that you do celebrates general knowledge, but there aren't that many around. No. The the odd yeah. thing, the way I put it, Sarv, is actually we're we're trained increasingly narrowly. Yeah. But 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 the truth is, while the jobs you do do require that narrow training, yeah. the job is going to train you that, to, to do that anyway. Anyway. To do the job well, ideally, you would have had some broader yeah. training, at, you know, before you got to the job, uh, and that's what is missing. I, I'm struck by this often when I talk to the CEOs of companies. They will all lament a little bit how they're they're drawing mm. from a narrow and narrow pool, and they need to be draw, but yeah. they but they keep doing it. And then I say to them, by the way, what did you major in in college? And it'll turn out to be English, yep. you know, philosophy, <laughs> history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Hank Paulson, who was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, yeah. then became Treasury Secretary, uh, was an English major, summa cum laude English major yeah. from Dartmouth. Yeah. Um, the 
uh, CEO of Time Warner, Jeff Bukas, who owns CNN and Warner Brothers yeah. and HBO, uh, is a philosophy major from Yale. Um, the number of people on Wall Street who have degrees in history and, and philosophy and English yeah. is quite extraordinary. But then they go out and hire uh, people with very narrow technical training because yeah. they've, they've themselves bought into the idea that this is what you need. This is what you need, yeah. Can, can we switch tack a little bit now? Mm -hmm. And because and again, you've written very, um, very eloquently about the importance of reading and writing. Um, two skills that in my view are, are on, the, on the decline at the moment. Can you say sure. a little bit about that? Well, reading, we all know why it's on, uh, on the decline. Unfortunately, it's because technology has made it uh, made it just so much easier to consume um, much shorter, m much more accessible, uh, um, and much more entertaining yep. uh, information um, than uh, than reading. I I think I to say this in the book. I can't remember, but you know, when I grew up in India, there was no television until I was ten years old. Yep. Then we had one channel. It yep. was black and white. It played mostly agricultural documentaries extolling the virtues of India, which meant nobody watched. <laughs> and so, you know, all we could yep. do to entertain ourselves was read. Yep. Uh, and you'd read enormous amounts, and you'd read, uh, you know, the entire oeuvre of some author mm -hmm. because one book would lead to another. Uh, it's very rare to see that today among yep. among kids, and yet. The only way to acquire deep knowledge about any subject, yeah. deep understanding of any of any issue, is still reading and reading books. Uh, you know, the 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 truth is, the human brain hasn't gotten any better at being able to somehow become an expert at something yeah. just because we all we do is spend our time reading tweets uh, and 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 blog postings. You know, it's yeah. not like that somehow magically makes you an expert. No, you still need that depth of knowledge. Yeah. But we've just lost the incentive structure to make that happen. And by the way, I I don't blame this on, uh, you know, young people. This is no, not in any way a tirade. If I had at my disposal in 1975 when I was growing up in India, if I had a supercomputer in yeah. my prop pocket that yeah. could stream for me every movie and television show made, you know, in in in, in history, uh, of course I'd be sitting there yeah. watching Netflix and not and not reading. But given that. I say the challenge for education is you still need to read the big books. Uh, you still need to acquire that, you know, that level yeah. of depth and complexity. And how do you achieve that? So for me, reading is a, there's a real there's a real dilemma here, which is that you're really fighting the technology. Writing, I think, is more of a perennial problem. It has yeah. always been hard. Okay. Um, my daughter is 14. She's just starting out in high school, and she was struck by how hard it is to write. A, you know, a good English paragraph. Yep. Uh, and the nice thing about the school she's at is that they really force you to, yep. to do it again and again because I think people somehow make the mistake of thinking that because they they speak a language and they speak it effortlessly, they can communicate yep. uh, through writing easily. But it's actually not easy. It's, it's very not hard. the same thing. And it's you, very hard. You have yep. to structure your, your thoughts in a sequence that is logical, uh, that that makes sense not just to you internally, but makes sense when you communicate it to yeah. somebody else. Uh, I give the example, which is I think a wonderful one, of Jeff Bezos, who begins his Amazon uh, strategy meetings. Yep. About, it's about the eight top people at Amazon, and he calls it study hall. It's 20 minutes where one person who is presenting at that meeting will literally read 
uh, or uh, have written a memo which everyone else then quietly reads. And the idea being that, yeah. and, and it's a memo, it's written as paragraphs, not bullet points, not PowerPoint, because he wants, as he says, he wants a clear, internally coherent, logical argument about yeah. what Amazon should do next in any one area, and that can only come uh, through writing essentially an essay. Yeah. And then he asks everyone to read that essay, and they all sit and do it together. And it so shows, I think, the importance of that clarity of thought and that clarity yeah. of logic that can only come from good writing. And, and actually, what I loved about that part of the book was was you, where you made the link between writing and actually organizing the thinking. In, in other words, it's not it's not like you you have the abstract mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. and it's clear in your head and you're putting it out down on paper. It's the act of putting it down on paper is what helps you structure and clarify the thought. And I thought that was actually quite a quite an important insight and at least something that intuitively I I was uh, aware of, but I had never sort of seen it seen it articulated quite quite so clearly. I think it may be because having written a column now for about 20 years, what I've realized is that um, you may think you have an idea. Yeah. Uh, and this often happens to me still. I think I have an idea. And once you sit down and put it on, on, on paper, you realize, actually, I don't have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had an impulse. I yeah. had one factoid. I yeah. had one you know, germ of an idea. But yeah. that when you, when you actually sit down and have to construct an argument, you realize... You have to rethink this. You have to go back and learn more. You've got to talk to more people. You 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 have to construct uh, uh, you know a series of these points that then link in logical in a logical way that provide evidence. And then at the end of it, you have an yeah. idea. And by the way, I'm writing an 800 word essay. Um, imagine what it's like when you're trying to write a book. Yep. Right. No, I. I... <laughs> I've I've been trying to write a book for the last ten years, and it's it's not it's not easy. It's the hardest thing. It is the. It's, I mean, I've, I'm trying to do one now. It'll be my fifth, and by without any question, it is the most difficult thing one can do because then each of those eight hundred word essays, in a sense, has itself to be linked one to the other, and as you do that, you keep. In my experience, you keep realizing that you have holes, you have you have fallacies, you have gaps and you have to keep filling them it's very humbling in a way to realize how limited we are yeah. when you write and again i think what what this um this exchange illustrates to me is that that good writing is it's rigorous it's a discipline it's a skill uh, it's something that needs to be practiced mm -hmm. it's not something that uh you know again we tend to think of writing as a creative process okay. yes there are the creative elements to it but they're also the, the disciplinary um, elements as yeah. well. The, the I think practice, that's exactly the repetition. Right. That's exactly the, right. yeah. There's so much of this is a yeah. craft that can be taught, that can be mastered uh, with with uh, with you know good instruction, with proper structure, and lots of practice. There is always the X factor that, and this is true even in creative writing. I think there's a lot of good creative writing that is just you can be taught but then you know to achieve the level of a Tolstoy or a Dostoevsky or a, you know a Dickens probably requires some extra dimension that comes sure. from a life experience yep. that yep. comes from a way of observing the world that comes from maybe often setbacks yep. but that's the X factor that distinguishes the truly um, people you know I, I I think that we don't need to try to find a way for to, to turn everybody into Tolstoy as long as they could just yeah. <laughs> write pretty no, well. No, sure, <laughs> and, and and you know, obviously there is an element of the creative genius yeah. in 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 these uh, 
uh, in Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and and the other great uh, great novelists. Um, but yes, we we can all aspire though to to be able to articulate uh, a coherent argument right. in you know in uh, eight hundred to yeah. twelve hundred words. Um, where I know we're coming up to uh, to to our time here, but I I just wanted to touch on uh, a little bit again the you mentioned it earlier in the conversation where you talked about the bifurcation of knowledge uh, between sciences and the humanities and. And again, what I what I um, what I found uh, uh, really insightful in, in the book was when you quoted, I think it was Anthony Cronman, who said that the physical sciences at some point ceased to be concerned with, or to have much to contribute to the search for an answer to the meaning of life. Um, and then you went on to say, uh, science was relegated to scientists, which is a huge loss to society. Can you? Exactly. Maybe elaborate a little bit on that because I think it's it's you know it's one, an important point. One of the things people forget is that liberal arts, uh, in its origins, in its Greek and then Roman origins, was never meant to be uh, devoid of science. Mm-hmm. Science was very much part of it. In fact, in, in many ways, central to it, the study of with geometry, astronomy, things like yeah. that that the Greeks really pioneered was center. It was it was central to that liberal education that the Greeks first invented the Romans and... Well, they used enhanced. to call it natural philosophy. Exactly, That's, exactly. Yeah. The, what the arts in liberal arts actually refers to as as opposed to crafts or trades, yes. that is, you know, as opposed yeah. to being taught how to be a cobbler or something like that. Um, but uh, science was, as you say, natural philosophy, and it was, it was you know, part of that larger exploration of trying to understand who are we, why are we here, what, what are we doing, what should we do? What should we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and that science was meant to answer some of those questions. And, you know, some of it would get caught up with science. Uh, Aristotle's science was, you know, sort of tended to be uh, or, or, or more normative than, than was turned yeah. out to be accurate, you know, yeah. that you had humors within you sure. and, the, the, yeah. you know, the, the, they were hot or cold and yeah. things like that. But what we lost was that understanding that science is also about this question of, you know that tries to answer the the central questions about life. What is a good life? What you know? How do you live a good life? What 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 can what can this form of knowledge do to explain enhance that? And I think that as science got more technical and lost that uh, that that sense, that bridge between science and mm-hmm. and, and yeah. non sciences was lost. I hope in some ways, in a strange way, that computers are actually bringing us back bring to us it back. Yeah. because I think we are now beginning to understand that many of the big questions about computers do involve this question of what is it that machines do better than humans what is it that humans do better yeah. than machines how do we emphasize the the distinctive features of human beings when a machine can add and and play chess better than than any human yeah. can so what does you know what makes us genuinely human uh, and that is a question that people who are doing artificial intelligence ask, yep. just as moral philosophers ask. Yep. You know, so maybe we can come back to to some of these questions. But um, it's it's a, it it is as you say a loss for all of us because uh, it's not just that we lose. You know, we lose when you have humanities people who don't know enough about sciences. We lose a lot when you have scientists who don't know a lot about the, the humanities. humanities. Yeah, no, that's right. And I and I think I mean I. I I tend to agree with you that we have an opportunity now to, in a sense, come full circle 
and and incorporate uh, uh, or reunify, shall we say, the uh, our field of knowledge because it's also becoming increasingly clear that when we're designing these uh, new technologies and particularly when it comes to you know social media and and uh, artificial intelligence, the choices that the designer makes are not morally neutral right. or ethically neutral perhaps is a, is a better way to to phrase it and therefore you need to be thinking about for example you know how how addictive mm -hmm. should you know an iphone be for example you know the the all these little features that make us want to come back to to that phone um are in in many ways um promoting addictions in the same way that you know nicotine would promote cigarette addiction or or sugars and, and fats promote you know addictions to um, uh, to certain foods and I think we need to go back to to incorporating kind of ethical dimension into into how we interact with our technology because it's becoming very personal technology now I think it's in a way that perhaps, 20, 30 years ago, there was a sort of distance between us and our technology. Now it's getting much more um, incorporated into our, our very being. I think that's so, so true. And I think that the way, the whole way we think about technology right now is without any sense of that larger context. So it's, there's one piece of it, as you say, that is about what is the psychological effect this, this, uh, this technology is having on the human, on human beings' personalities, even actually on their, their 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 brains, you know, the way in which we're using almost we're getting this dopamine rush mm -hmm. every time you see it, every time you hear the ping of a text yeah. or an email, it's sort of sending you the subtle signal. Somebody th is thinking about me. Yeah. Somebody loves me. Yeah, and you get you get addicted to that yeah. dopamine rush of constantly being able to hear those pings, so that you know that there's somebody in the universe. Well, turns out, of course, eighty percent of it is junk mail, but uh, but never mind. Yeah. <laughs> but there's another piece of it, which yeah. is how do we distinguish truth from falsehood? Yes, uh, you know, yeah. in this world of post-truth and fake facts, and and what you realize is that these technologies are completely neutral. Uh, that they will transmit just as easily, in fact, more easily, the the falsehood compared yeah. to the lie, uh, compared to the truth. How do you how do you place some standards, controls, yeah. sense of responsibility on on those you know that kind of the virality of the media? Mm -hmm. How do you place some controls yeah. on the way in which an individual consumes it? And we we've sort of tended to um, to almost abdicate those questions. Yeah on the idea that technology will do what it will do. But that's never been true. Human yeah. beings have always interacted with technology and communities have always interacted with technology. Uh, and look, you know, whether you like it or not, the Chinese government has shown uh, you can control technology. If you I mean, want if to, you, yeah. want to yeah. you can control technology yeah. and, uh, and yeah. you will not suffer and you, know, you will not have some huge sacrifice in terms of uh, economic growth and things like that. Yeah. I don't advocate that at all, but I'm saying it does show mm -hmm. That one can, one yeah. one does not have the only response to technology we have in, in, uh, often in the Western world, certainly in America, is just throw up our hands and, and no, there's not yeah, there's abdicate. nothing I can do about yeah. it and, yeah. and and yeah, technological I, technological determinism I think is precisely, uh, is, precisely. is is a dangerous uh, tendency and it, one one thing I would sort of challenge somewhat is, I mean I agree with you that technology is neutral insofar as it it doesn't care 
whether something is true or false and if we're talking about social right. media but it's not i mean that that's in my view that's not a neutral choice right that's right. a choice right that's that, actually that they're that, making right. it or, that's or actually or, yeah yeah to be neutral yeah. on on an issue of truth versus falsehood is a problem it's and it's it, an ethical it choice should be, it should yeah. be it yeah. should be fixed in yeah. some way and this and I, yeah. I think and i think by the way you're going to see a greater degree of discomfort yeah. with the way technologies are neutral um, and often they're neutral yeah. for perverse economic advantage yeah. you know so if you look at the way google searches now will simply throw up whoever pays the most money yeah. not the most accurate yeah. search um, that is, in a sense, a perversion mm-hmm. of the idea of genuine search, perverted for economic reasons. Yeah, yeah, and also, I mean, in, even when when money doesn't come into play, the the fact that it's 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 pushing information to you that it thinks you like is again, it's something that was was primarily driven by the desire for this to become an advertising platform, right. and therefore, I figure out what you like, and you know, I. I, I, I see that you like uh, you know candy, and I'll right. you know push ads on uh, about candy to you. Is that then gets transposed into oh I see that you read you know a lot of alt right uh, media and there or or, or left leaning media, and I'm just going to keep pushing that down yeah. the channel towards yeah. you. Look, I think that we may look back on this period and and say we thought that this age of technology was going to produce. A much flatter world, much more open world, much more uh, a world in which anyone could do whatever they wanted. The individual was empowered. But look at what the digital economy has become. It's five big companies that completely dominate this world yeah. with massive returns to scale, massive uh, advantages that are essentially yeah. quasi-monopoly or oligopoly-like. Um, you know, you go to Silicon Valley today, and they don't even think in terms of doing IPOs anymore. They just assume they will be bought by Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, and then that's it. They're, that is your path to success, not to exist as yeah. an independent company. There's a kind of big, there's a big brother feeling to that world right yeah. now, and, and and it's ironic that it's co- it's come out of the the the, bo- uh, the, the home the wild of, world of, of the liber- internet, liber- yeah. <laughs> libertarianism yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. and so. I think that we are going to have to have some kind of more uh, serious discussion about w- how does one have a uh, economic, a political, a moral conversation about um, about some cons- not constraints even some guidelines, some channels, some some structures within this world that um, that allow for a uh, outcomes that are that are more. Uh, beneficial outcomes that are uh, w- ones that you know, as you say, do not sit entirely neutral between truth and falsehood, because that's actually not neutral. Yes, yeah. that's uh, there's something morally well, that, wrong. It's an about ethical that. choice right. that that one is making. Now, this this has been a terrific conversation, uh, Farid. I I appreciate you being here and uh, and sharing your thoughts with us. As as a way to to. Uh, to wrap up perhaps any any insights into the new book when is it coming out what's what's it about and uh, and maybe just a few words i mean you're, you're very well known so i think people know how to follow you they can watch you on uh, cnn uh, your show gps i believe airs on sundays and the podcast uh, comes out as well on uh, on uh, sunday evening 
That's right. At least at this point, nobody has bought up my Google searches. So if you did a Fareed Zakaria <laughs> Google search, you'd probably get mostly what I do. But yeah, the CNN show repeats many times yep. on CNN worldwide. And then there's the pod. You can get the podcast. Uh, you can follow my column at the on the Washington Post. Yep. Um, the next book is, is really about this transformation that m many of the forces we've just been talking about is, is doing to politics around the world. We're really going from... Uh, a political system that was dominated by uh, a, a, a divide that was fundamentally about economics, a left-right divide about the role of the state in, yep. the, in, the, in, in the economy. We're going from that to an open-closed divide uh, that is about the role of society, not yep. the state. Um, do you want an open society, a society open to ideas, goods, culture, people, um, or do you want a society that is more closed, that is more structured, that has more limitations on this free flow of ideas, goods, cultures, people? And I think you can see that in the, all over Europe, certainly, but you're even seeing it in far-flung places where uh, those leaders who are doing well are those who promise to protect yep. uh, in some way, protect the nation against this big, bad world out there. Uh, and that's, I think, this is going to be the, the divide of the 21st century. And yeah. I think we have to we have to come to realize the old world, the old order is past, and we're we're in for a very new and different one. And and education will presumably play a, a central role, both in perhaps in determining the kind of choice that communities make, but also will be shaped by those choices as well. I think that's exactly right. I hope that education plays the choice uh, plays the role of uh, you know connecting people of and reminding them as you put it so well that education is really a universal idea it is yeah. not a national idea yeah. um but it will be used um and it, it is being in my view misused yeah. uh, to uh, to emphasize a kind of national chauvinism um and nationalist nationalist narratives uh, and that will play a, a powerful role. But I hope, you know, one of the great legacies of the Enlightenment is that no knowledge does win out over in, time. In the end. In yeah, the end, in it the is end. difficult to construct a false narrative. Uh, in, in the end, I think fake facts uh, do, do crumble on the weight of evidence. Um, and, you, see, you know, you see this even uh, in small ways in the United States right now where you have people, you know, it's candidate for the Senate was accused of essentially uh, kind of sexual harassment of, of teenagers. Yeah. Uh, and he is, his initial reaction, which has now become the reaction of anyone to news they don't like, is, oh, this is all fake news. Yeah. Well, guess what? By the time you have the third accuser in meticulous detail explaining in, you know, with 20 corroborations mm -hmm. what happened, it doesn't sound so fake anymore. Yeah. And it just sounds like news. And um, And I hope that we will come to a world where we don't lose that distinction between truth and falsehood, because yeah. that, at the end, is what education rests on above all. Fareed, thank you, and I hope when the book comes out, you'll give us a chance to uh, discuss it with you. Uh, Another again. podcast. Pleasure, Stavros. <laughs> thank you.